millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In an experiment. There is no yet. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we've got four and twenty ways science could help a budding industry. And a potted history of the sun. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Shamni Bundell. Around the world, more and more governments are relaxing legislation on the use of cannabis, both for medical and recreational purposes. But how much do we know about how to grow this formerly black market crop? To find out, reporter Ailey Dolgan headed over to a cannabis factory in Canada, only the second country in the world to legalise the stuff. His goal? To find out how science could help. Let's see if you can tap your card. Oh boy. You're going to be tapping your card a lot. Just tap? No good. In a suburban Toronto strip mall, past a barbed wire fence and layers of electronic security, sit rows upon rows of cannabis plants. Welcome to Terrasend, one of 129 licensed cannabis producers in Canada. You're right together. Ari Unterman, the company's head of business development, shows me around. So the first room we're going to is our mother and bedroom. This is where the company keeps its stocks of different cannabis plants. The varieties each have distinctive names like CBD Godbud and Shishkaberry. Uh, the yield on the shishkaberry is about 15% better than the CBD Godbud. Um, but as we grow these more times, we're learning the right food recipe, lights, uh, environmental controls, amount of time in each phase, etc., etc. So um, the... Those aren't the only scientific studies happening here at Terrasend. A few months ago, the company teamed up with a few local academics to run a series of experiments altering the plant's genetics. One of those academics, Shelley Lumba from the University of Toronto, normally studies a parasitic plant called witchweed. But with cannabis getting legalized, she jumped on the chance to study a different kind of weed instead. This is a natural place for us to try to maximize our skills and, and into a commercial plant. She and her team are now exposing cannabis seeds to chemical mutagens and looking for DNA changes that benefit the plant in some way. Those mutations may confer disease resistance 
or they might yield chemical profiles that are better for patients. It's a fairly basic experiment, but one that could have a huge impact for an industry that has lacked a solid scientific foundation. The industry struggles mightily for just real information, reliable information. Mike Dixon is a plant scientist at the University of Guelph, home to the largest agricultural college in Canada. He laments the fact that many growers continue to operate as they've always done, cultivating cannabis in much the same way as they did in basements and warehouses during the plant's black market days. They're basing a lot of what they do on what they know, which is not founded in sound scientific principles. And uh, some of it is, is just remarkably silly. That's beginning to change, though, because of the global trend toward legalization. And nowhere is there more money and opportunity for cannabis science than in Canada, where, starting on October 17th, the plant will be legal for all medical and recreational purposes. Legalization has brought with it government support and financial services, both of which, says Shelley Lumba, put the country in a very unique position. Canada is perfectly situated to be pretty much a driving force when it comes to research and development for cannabis. The goal for scientists and companies alike is to produce high-quality, industrial-grade cannabis that's consistent from plant to plant. This should ensure patients get the same dose from one cannabis prescription to the next, and that recreational users know what they're putting in their bodies. Some researchers, like Lumba, are focused on meeting these goals through breeding and genetics. But others, like Dixon, think that there are better places to focus their scientific efforts. We can take genetics and blow it out of the water. For the past 20 years, Dixon has worked with the Canadian Space Agency to develop systems for growing food on other planets. Now, he's applying some of those same technologies to cannabis, starting with fine-tuning the lighting conditions. The spectral quality of the light is imperative. You really do have to figure out what the physiological response of the plant is to this color because it's different than it is to that color. And the implications in interpreting the medical benefits are profound. In addition to light, Dixon is also testing how best to modulate temperature, humidity, and ambient carbon dioxide levels. So if you homogenize those four major environment variables, you can't lose. The plant must do what you tell it to. So there's 660 plants drying in here. Sorry, it's going to be dark in here until I turn the lights on. Back at Terrasend, Ari Enterman walks me somewhat backwards through the last two steps of the cultivation process. Amidst hundreds of plants hanging upside down, he explains the three key elements that affect the quality of cannabis. The genetics going into the plant the growing conditions, and then the drying and packaging conditions. Finally, Unterman takes me into the grow room, where I'm immediately struck by the glow of the high-pressure sodium lamps. Wow! <laughs> this is where the magic happens. Uh, but you can tell, nice uh, healthy plant, nice color green, pretty robust, uh, and yeah, that's pretty much it. But really, there's so much more. With advances in genetics and agriculture, the cannabis industry is entering a new phase of science-driven R&D. And after years of black market breeding, this weed is becoming a true horticultural crop. That was Ailey Dolgan reporting from Canada.
If you want to read more about the science of cannabis production, check out Ailey's feature-length story over at nature.com forward slash news. Speaking of news, we've got a mission to Mercury and a climate disaster brewing for brewers. That's coming up in the news chat. But first, it's the research highlights, read this week by the newest member of the podcast team, Ali Jennings. Scientists in the States have constructed a purpose-built microscope to study early mouse embryos in unprecedented detail. After a mouse embryo implants in the uterus, it undergoes a staggering transformation, ballooning to 250 times its initial size in just 48 hours. During this time, embryonic cells divide, expand and reshuffle as they rush to build the mouse's basic body plan. Up until now, researchers had only seen snapshots of this staggeringly complex process. The embryos are easily damaged by light, and their rapidly evolving size and shape can make it tricky for microscopes to keep the image in focus and at the right resolution. This new microscope automatically tracks the embryo's growth and uses single sheets of laser light to illuminate this transformation for the first time. So, if you fancy brightening up your day, check out their stunning images in cell. Now, are you sitting comfortably? Well, if you're listening to this podcast from Jupiter's moon Europa, the answer is probably not. A team in the UK have suggested that ice on the surface of Europa could form 15-metre-tall frozen blades around its equator. Ouch. On Earth, these spikes form when a steady stream of sunlight repeatedly reflects back and forth inside small pits in cold, dry snow. The sunlight's heat causes snow from the pit's edges and bottoms to sublimate from solid straight to gas, so the pits grow wider and deeper until only their edges remain, forming spine-like structures called penitentes. And if that pricks your interest, you can read about it in Nature Geoscience. Now, here in the UK, autumn is currently getting serious and reminding us all that the record-breaking Northern Hemisphere summer of 2018 is well and truly over. Despite worries about the warming climate, we will miss it. So we've sent Lizzie Gibney off to remind us all of warmer days by exploring the story of the sun. Solar physics is something of a hot field of research right now, if you excuse the pun. In August, NASA launched the Parker Solar Probe, which is going to get closer to the sun than any craft has done in history. European Space Agency is launching its own probe in 2020. So why the interest? Well, despite being the very hub of our solar system, as well as an influencer of life and culture on this planet, the sun is still something of a mystery. To learn more, I've come to London's Science Museum, where a new exhibition is opening this week on our nearest star, the sun, and humans' relationship with it. I'm going to meet curator Harry Cliff for a sneak preview. Hi, Harry, is it? Yeah, hi, Susan, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So what's the, what's the motivation then behind this exhibition? What made you want to do it? So, well, the exhibition, so it's all about the sun, and the Science Museum has a great collection that kind of relates to the sun in all kinds of different ways. The problem with the subject, in a way, is it's so big, it touches almost every aspect of human history. So trying to distill it down to something manageable 
was the real challenge at the beginning. And the story we've gone for is really is the, the way that our relationship with the sun has changed through history, from the Bronze Age right up to the Space Age, um, but through the lens of science, technology, and medicine. So where do we begin? So we start off with this rather beautiful screen. So this is showing a live feed of footage of the sun over the last 24 hours. What you can see here is the sun in extreme ultraviolet light. And as soon as you look at this, you see the sun is not a sort of static source of light. It's dynamic. You can see there's all kinds of things going on its surface. There's magnetic field lines bursting up from sunspots. You've got the, the atmosphere is constantly sort of moving around and changing. You can see around the edge of the sun this kind of hazy uh, halo, which is the corona, which is a, a region of superheated plasma. Um, you can see sunspots, which are the sort of regions where you have these bright magnetic filaments looping out from the surface of the sun. Fantastic. It looks very dramatic. So how long have people been studying the, the sun as the, as the centre of our solar system? You can find evidence of ancient Greek philosophers who argued that the sun was the centre, but they never really gained much traction. It was Aristotle's view of the universe with the, with the Earth at the centre that really became the dominant model. So the idea that the sun is the centre of the solar system only really starts to become widely accepted from the 16th century onwards, when Copernicus publishes on the revolution of heavenly spheres in 1543. But it's not this instantaneous change in our view of the universe. It takes a century for his ideas to become refined and accepted, ultimately with the contributions of other people like Galileo and Kepler and Newton. So this sort of, the next phase of the exhibition is, is kind of actually saying something that in a way is quite obvious, but also we've totally forgotten, which is that time is solar. So our very concept of time really ultimately comes from the sun. And for most of history, if you wanted to know what the time was, you looked at the sky and you looked for where the sun was in the sky. And because we're surrounding ourselves now by machines and by digital devices, we've kind of forgotten that basic fact. Is there still any link at all? Or do we just measure time digitally nowadays? Well, so one of the objects we have over here in this showcase is an atomic clock. So in the 1960s, the global time standard moved away from astronomical time based on the Earth's rotation and move to atomic clocks, which are much more precise. And that's because the Earth actually doesn't rotate perfectly. It wobbles and, if they, you know, and it changes. So you find that the Earth will lose or gain certain amounts of time depending on what's going on on its surface. The only link that's maintained is that we have these things called leap seconds. So every, I think it's every six months, people compare the time according to atomic clocks with time according to the universe, to astronomy. And if they find that things have drifted by more than a second, they add or subtract a second from atomic time to keep it in step. Ah, so this looks like we've leapt a little bit further forward into the future. Yeah, so this is quite an interesting story, and it really begins at the end of the 19th century when uh, Robert Koch and Niels Ribberg Finsen discover that sunlight has bactericidal properties, particularly that it can be used to kill tuberculosis bacteria. And you get special hospitals, sanatoria set up, where children and patients can be put out onto a sun deck and they're actually left in the sunshine. So TB leaves in the skin are then treated using natural sunlight. So that wasn't an old wives' tale, that actually did have no, an it impact? No, does, it does have an impact. But you also get a certain amount of quackery that comes out of this. So this really strange object, which is a big wooden human-sized box with mirrors on the inside and light bulbs. This is an artificial light bath, electric light bath. It was invented by John Harvey Kellogg of Kellogg's Cornflakes uh, fame for his sanatoria uh, in the, the 1930s and 40s. So the idea is you sit inside this box, the doors close, the lights are switched on and it blasts you with light and that's supposed to treat all kinds of ailments from a bad back to you know, diabetes, whatever you like. There's very little evidence it did anything apart from warming up and possibly risk electrocution. I'm not sure I'd want to get in it, to be honest. Me neither. It looks a bit like a torture chamber. Yeah. 
So, of course, the sun is not all good for people's health. No, and this is only really realised uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. You get a huge increase in melanoma cases as a result of everyone being told in the 30s and 40s, go out and get as much sun as possible. So this uh, section is all about our attempts to harness the sun to drive machines to power our industries. So in the 1870s, particularly in France, you have engineers who are already thinking what happens when coal runs out, how are we going to power the world? This is a finite resource. Um, and they start to build solar-powered machines. And there's a big uh, exposition in Paris where, uh, very famously, Auguste Rousseau and FIFRA display this large solar engine. Uh, which is used to power a printing press that prints off this solar journal and it kind of amazes the crowds, turning light into mechanical power. So we've got here, we think, the oldest solar-powered machine in existence. And how does it work? So it's a parabolic dish that focuses sunlight onto a heat engine um, that warms it up and then uses the, the heat generator to drive uh, a little engine. Actually, there's even, there's even an egg cup uh, attachment, so you can use it to boil an egg if you wanted to, or cook an egg. You can do an awful lot with a bit of, a bit of light. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that you was concentrate that, it enough. There's that famous incident a few years ago with the, the, um, uh, the 20 Fenchurch Street in London, this new skyscraper that was built with a concave surface that focused the sun's light onto a guy's BMW or something and melted the car. So, yeah, the sun's very powerful, and if you, you concentrate it, you can cause all kinds of mischief. <laughs> We're trying with this expert to remind people this thing is really fundamental and you know actually so much of what we take for granted comes from the sun that was harry cliff talking to lizzie gibney at the science museum in london england read lizzie's review of the exhibition at nature.com forward slash books dash culture and finally this week it's time for the news chat and joining me in the studio is a voice you might have heard before anna nagel she's our chief editor for digital and engagement welcome anna hi there So listeners might remember in last week's news chat, we discussed the new IPCC report and we have another climate change story here with some more bad news. This time it's about what climate change could do to beer production. Anna, tell us what's the damage. It's it's bad. It means your beer is going to become more expensive. And why is that? A lot of research has looked at the impact of climate change on uh, more staple crops like wheat and rice. But these researchers looked at the production of barley and they found that under pretty much any climate change scenario, um, global production of barley is, is going to go down and that will mean that the price of your pint will go up. And of course, barley is a staple crop in the production of beer. Absolutely. So what they did is they um, squished together sort of climate models, economic models, um, and looked at the impact that the reduced production of barley would have on consumption and the price of a pint of beer. And they are showing some really direct, tangible impact. I will throw some figures at you now. Are you sitting down? Because they're not pretty numbers. So it is China that will actually show the biggest national drop in beer consumption. Per year, they'll be drinking over 4 billion fewer litres of beer. Um, In terms of costs, it's Ireland that will see the biggest absolute price increase um, out of all the countries that they studied. The price of beer will go up almost $5 per half-litre bottle, which triples the current cost, which is pretty eye-watering. By anyone's, by anyone's standards. Now, these numbers are for the worst-case scenario. They do have numbers for different levels of warming, and some of them aren't quite as eye-watering, but they're still all increasing. Yeah, even under the very best-case scenario, um, globally, the model that they came up with predicted a 4% reduction in beer consumption, but a 15% increase in price. So often we hear about how climate change is going to disproportionately affect the less developed world, but this is a situation where those that may be sheltered from some of climate change 
changes effects in the industrialised world are still going to feel its impact. That's exactly why the researcher decided to focus on something like this. It might sound like a small thing, um, but he explicitly said that he's trying to emphasise how climate change will impact people's lifestyle. And by showing the impact on that, he's hoping it will prompt people to take action and address it sooner rather than later. And of course, our beer consumption is one thing and that will have an impact on many in the developed world. But that does not really compare in many ways to the impacts which will be felt by many in the developing world. Absolutely. I mean, worries about our beer consumption pale in comparison to the kind of life-changing and life-threatening effects of climate change in the developing world. But if this kind of research can help reveal to people in the developed world the impact of our habits and um, our consumption, then it's one way of getting that communication across that might encourage people to make some changes in the long run. Okay, so from one long-running problem to another long-running mission, this is the BepiColombo mission to Mercury, which is due to launch any day now. Absolutely. So this is just the second ever mission to get into Mercury's orbit and it is the most expensive um, mission from the European Space Agency coming in at 1.6 billion euros. And it's not just the European Space Agency involved here, the Japanese have got involved as well. Absolutely. It's um, Japan's largest contribution yet to an international collaboration in space. Now, this mission has been in the planning stages for a long time, since the 90s. Tell me, what is it that they're trying to achieve? So what they aim to do is they will be sending BepiColombo off on its mission. It will take seven years to get to Mercury and it will arrive in orbit, hopefully, in early December 2025. And then it will release two probes, one built by ESA, the European Space Agency, and the other by uh, JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency. Now, there have been various missions by ESA and JAXA and others to Mars, to comets, to asteroids that have dropped things on those asteroids. Why is this a particularly tricky mission to get to Mercury? Mercury is deep in the sun's gravitational well. So to get there, the craft has to lose that initial momentum that it's got from Earth's orbital motion so that it can fall towards the sun in the first place. But then it's got to avoid overshooting. So altogether, all these complex bits of the journey, which is nine billion kilometres, um, it will take eight times more energy and several years longer than, say, an equivalent uh, mission to get to Mars. So tell me, what does the journey from Earth to Mercury look like? How is BepiColombo going to get there? So it's using some really advanced technology. It's using um, solar-powered ionic thrusters and combining that with some uh, gravitational help from a total of nine flybys of Earth, Venus and Mercury itself. Now, Mercury, up until relatively recently, was considered to be a fairly dull planet that was hot and round, not much going on. But actually, there's maybe more things to look at than we at one point thought. So, yeah, in recent years, there's been um, a few surprises from what we thought was quite a a dull planet um, in the context of all the other planets. Um, It's had an unusual magnetic field, water ice deposits found in some of its craters. Um, But partly because of the difficulties in getting there, some of of those things have made it one of the least explored of the four planets of the inner solar system. So, so far, there's only been um, one other mission that's entered Mercury's orbit, which was NASA's MESSENGER mission, which spent four years studying the planet um, a few years ago. Um, But this will be just the second one ever, apart from that one, to enter the orbit and find out a bit more about it. And I have to ask, why BepiColombo? It's a great name. Where does that come from? It is a great name. It's named after Giuseppe BepiColombo, who's a late Italian scientist who studied Mercury. And um, he conceived of um, of the trajectory that was used for a mission in the 70s known as um, Mariner 10. So this is a collaboration between the European Space Agency and JAXA, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. And this is a particularly busy time for JAXA because they have another 
mission that we've reported on the podcast recently called Hayabusa 2 that is currently in a crux point and there has been some more news about that as well. JAXA was hoping that they'd be able to make a landing this month on the Ryugu asteroid but they've had to delay that until January. And why has that delay occurred? Has something gone wrong? Uh, No, nothing's gone wrong. It's just that the asteroid that they're landing on is considerably rockier than they were anticipating. So what they're trying to do is going to take a little bit longer to make sure that when they do make a landing, they can safely do it in, in a much smaller zone. Okay, so delay but no disaster. And we're going to have to watch and see what comes out of that mission and watch and see over a longer time to find out what comes back from Mercury. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Anna. And that's it for this week's show. As always, you can find even more of the latest science to peruse over at nature.com forward slash news. Now, there is sadly no show next week, but we will be back better than ever in two weeks' time. And if you'd like to help us on our quest for continual self-improvement, why not give us some feedback? Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you want more of. Get in touch on Twitter at Nature Podcast or a good old-fashioned email, podcast at nature.com. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Noah Baker. Thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.